Endless Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History Podcast. Season 2, Episode 9, 1907-08 vs England, The Big Ship. This is Part 2 of our episode covering the 1907-08 series against England. Part 1 was released last week and covers the first two tests of the five-test series. We resumed the series locked at one win apiece. The English captain Jones, having lost 12 kilograms due to his illness, was slowly recovering and had made the journey to Adelaide with his side. However, he was not yet fit to play in the third test. The English therefore went in unchanged. The Australians made two changes. Batsman Roger Hardigan from Queensland, who had been 12th man for the second test, was brought in place of Cotter, who had suffered an injury, whilst Hazlitt was dropped, replaced by the South Australian right-arm medium bowler Jack O'Connor. Noble won the toss and chose to bat on what was considered a perfect batting wicket. There was some concern for the Australians, with Trumper, Hill and Armstrong suffering from illness, but all took their places in the side. Trumper and Noble opened, with Noble opening the scoring with a boundary off the first ball. Trumper managed a nice cut shot just short of the boundary, but was then bowled and fielded a second over off the inside edge for four. McCartney came to the crease at number three. He started positively, hitting boundaries off both Fielder and Barnes, getting to 15 runs after only 20 minutes of the wicket. Noble looked comfortable making 15 before edging one off Barnes to Hutchings at second slip. The Australians were now 2 for 35 as McAllister replaced his captain. He was lucky to survive a run-out chance with a throw from Rhodes just missing the stumps. Eventually, Rhodes replaced Barnes at the bowling crease, with McCartney welking him with consecutive boundaries. The two bats were able to make it to lunch without further loss, with the score at 79, with McCartney having moved to 40. Following lunch, Fielder and Barnes kept the scoring tight, with McCartney eventually breaking the shackles with a leagueside boundary, bringing up his half-century. McAllister had spent half an hour after lunch adding only two runs before hitting Rhodes for a boundary. The 100 came up soon after. The partnership reached 79 before Crawford induced McAllister to edge the second slip, dismissing him for 28. He was replaced by his fellow Victorian Armstrong. McCartney continued to bat imperiously, moving his score into the 70s and looking set for his first test century. However, the introduction of Braun brought about his downfall, with a leg spinner trapping him LBW for 75. He batted for two and a half hours and hit nine fours. Ransom then joined Armstrong at 4 for 140. The two took the score past 150, but their partnership didn't last long, as Armstrong edged fielder behind when he was only on 17. Hill, batting a lot lower than his customary three due to his illness, now arrived at the crease. He struggled to score, whilst Ransom found the boundary multiple times, taking the total onto 5 for 183 at the tee break. Following tee, Hill still couldn't find any momentum, and eventually edged Barnes behind for 5. Hardigan arrived at the crease on test debut, and was well received by the crowd. He was lucky to survive an early edge that passed between first and second slip. Meanwhile, Ransford took the total past 200 with a clip to fine leg. He looked set for a big score, but was then bowled by an excellent ball from Barnes for 44. Carter joined Hardigan at 7 for 215. Scoring was slow until Hardigan found the boundary off roads. This opened the shackles somewhat, as the two batsmen now started to find the boundaries more easily. Hardigan cut and drove the first two balls of a Crawford over for four, whilst Carter square cut Braun to the boundary. The partnership went past 50 as stumps approached. Fane turned to Hutchings for the first time in the day and was rewarded when Carter was trapped LBW for 24. Two runs later, Hardigan fell for 48 when he was bowled by fielder. Debutant O'Connor and Saunders saw out the rest of the day, with the Australians at 9 for 279. 15,000 spectators were present for day two, a Saturday. They saw the Australian innings only last a further 15 minutes before fielder bowled Saunders for one. O'Connor was 10 not out as the Australians finished on 285. Fielder was the pick of the bowlers with four wickets, whilst Barnes claimed three. Hill had been too sick to leave his bed that morning. 
His position on the field was taken by his brother Roy, one of six Hill brothers who played first-class cricket for South Australia between 1893 and 1912. Hobson Fane opened for the English. O'Connor, on debut, sent down the first over, a maiden. The scoring opened in the next over, with Fane cutting Saunders to the boundary. Hobbs was lucky to survive, edging O'Connor to Noble in the slips, with the Australian captain fumbling a simple chance. The scoring rate was slow, with O'Connor in particular being frugal, going for only 11 runs in 9 overs. Noble and Armstrong were tried before lunch, but with little impact, as the English headed to the break at 50 without having lost a wicket. Hobbs didn't last long after lunch, edging a ball behind to Carter off Saunders to be out for 26. Gunn replaced him and started cautiously. Fane, however, was looking good, lifting O'Connor to the boundary and heading towards a half-century. However, with his score at 48, he hit a ball to Trumper at point and set off for a run. Sent back by his partner, he was caught short. His dismissal left the English at 2 for 98. Hutchings joined Gunn, with the team century coming up soon after. Gunn was working mostly in singles, hitting 12 in a row to take his total into the 20s. Hutchings was looking much more fluent in compiling 23, but then drove a ball back to McCartney, who dived forward and took a magnificent catch. New man Braun couldn't last one ball, having his stumps scattered by the New South Wales left-arm spinner. The English were now 4 for 138. Hardstaff survived the hat-trick ball, but only just as the ball went dangerously close to the wicket. Gunn, who had watched on at the other end, launched a big six into the pavilion off Armstrong. The English had made their way to tea without further loss with a score at 160, with Gunn having made his way to 48. Following tea, Gunn brought up his half-century with a leg glance. The total continued to move steadily as Noble rotated his bowlers without luck. It took until the return of O'Connor to achieve the breakthrough, having Gunn play the ball onto his stumps, giving the South Australian his first test wicket. Gunner managed 65 and departed with a score at 194. Rhodes joined Hardstaff and the two took the total past 200. Hardstaff survived a loose shot off Saunders when he had moved to 46, with the ball falling safely between fielders. The partnership continued with little danger. Hardstaff brought up his half-century with a single off McCartney, whilst the 50 partnership was raised just before stumps. When the match ended for the day, the English had moved their total on to 5 for 259, only trailing by 26 runs with half their side still to come, a strong position in the match. Following the rest day, the game resumed on the Monday for day 3. Hardstaff started with two boundaries off Saunders. However, he was out in the fifth over of the day for 61 when he was bowled by O'Connor. He shared an 83-run partnership with Rhodes and hit nine boundaries. Crawford was the next man in, but only five runs later Rhodes also departed, edging O'Connor behind to Carter to be out for 38. The English were now 7 for 282, still trailing by three runs. Barnes joined Crawford and began with a boundary to leg off O'Connor. Crawford then on drove O'Connor twice for boundaries before a misfield saw the 300 raised. The total moved on to 320 before Barnes fell, hitting a catch back to Armstrong. Humphreys came in with eight wickets down. Crawford, running out of partners, now started to hit out. Humphreys provided able support as Crawford helped take the score past 350, bringing up his own half-century in the process. He took his score on to 62 before he was clean bowled by Armstrong. The innings ended without a further run being added, with Humphreys being run out. The English lost their final two wickets at 363. This gave them a lead of 88 runs, a total many fought low given their position at the end of day two. O'Connor was the pick of the bowlers, taking three wickets, whilst McCartney and Armstrong both claimed two. Trumper and Noble set about reducing the deficit. Noble cut the third ball through the slips for four, but Trumper was not so lucky. He played and missed at the first five balls he faced from Barnes before being clean bowled on the sixth. McCartney replaced him. The two batsmen moved the score on, with both lucky to survive edges through the slips. With a score at 35, McCartney played all round a ball from Barnes and was bowled for nine. Noble, now on 23, was joined by McAllister. Noble drove fielder for four, leading to him being replaced by Crawford. Crawford was then hit through the slips for four by McAllister, 
but otherwise the Victorian batted very slowly, taking over 30 minutes to reach double figures. The score went past 50, and the Australians were most of the way to erasing the deficit before McAllister was caught in the slips for 17 off Crawford. Armstrong arrived at the score at 3 for 71, still trailing by 17 runs. The two batsmen handled the bowling comfortably, with Noble bringing up a half-century after two hours at the wicket. The Australians moved into the lead and took their score past 100. The two batsmen raised their 50-run stand and looked set to see out the day. However, five minutes before the scheduled close, Armstrong couldn't resist a flighted ball from Braun, launching him into the outfield to be well caught by Hutchings. He departed for 34. O'Connor came in and saw out the rest of the day, the Australians finishing on 4 for 133, a lead of 55 runs. Noble was not out 63 and looked to be the key heading into the fourth day. Scorching temperatures of 41 degrees awaited the players on the Tuesday. Noble added two runs to his overnight total before he cut field at the second slip. His 65 had occupied almost three hours and included five boundaries. Ransom then joined O'Connor, taking 18 minutes before he opened his run scoring. He then struck consecutive boundaries off fielder, helping take the score past 150. Ransford struggled against the loopy leg breaks of Braun and was lucky to survive a loose shot that fell just short of gun at point. The two batsmen managed to get the lead past 100 before both were dismissed within a run of each other. Ransford fell to Braun, with Rhodes taking a smart catch in the outfield to dismiss him for 25. One run later, O'Connor was then bowled by Crawford for 20. The Australians were now 7 for 180, a lead of only 102 runs. Clem Hill, who had been held back due to his illness, now joined the debutant Hardigan at the crease. He took 10 minutes to score his first run, but the two batsmen were able to make it to lunch without further loss, with the score having moved to 7 for 199. The 200 was raised off the fourth ball after lunch as Hill drove Fielder to the boundary. Hardigan also began to find his groove, striking Fielder for consecutive boundaries with a pull shot followed by an off-drive. Hardigan took his score onto 32 before a ball from Barnes rose and caught the corner of his bat. The ball popped up to Fielder at point, but the Englishman failed to complete the chance. Hardigan responded by hitting the next ball for four. Hill was also lucky to survive when Humphreys missed a simple stumping chance off Rhodes. Soon after, Hill hit a simple catch to Barnes at mid-off, who dropped it. The English were letting the game slip, with Hardigan reaching his half-century. At this point, Hill was only on 23, but he now accelerated, hitting Braun to the boundary before cutting and driving Hutchings to four. His own 50 came up soon after. By the time T was taken, the score moved on to 309, with both batsmen in the 60s, having shared a partnership of over 100 runs. The Australians were now making the most of their opportunities. Shortly after T, Hill hit Rhodes for seven off two balls, going past his partner's score. Hardigan drove Crawford back over his head for four, regaining the lead. By the time the score reached 350, both batsmen were on 82. Hill took some time to rest due to the hot weather, but when he resumed, he was as vigorous as ever. Hardigan moved into the 90s with a drive-off fielder for four. He reached 99, then hit a ball into the offside off Rhodes, taking an easy single and bringing up his century, the fourth Australian, after Bannerman, Graham and Duff, to do so on test debut. He received a splendid ovation from the crowd. Hill then off-drove a boundary to take his score to 95, and the partnership did a double century mark, before a square cut-off Rhodes brought up his century. His fifth overall in tests, and first since 1902. A splendid innings made all the better due to the illness he was suffering from. Stumps were drawn shortly after, with the Australians having moved to 7 for 397. Hardigan was undefeated on 105, whilst Hill was on 106, with the pair having shared a 217-run partnership. The Australians' lead was now an imposing 309, and with the English exhausted after fielding in the hot weather, there was the prospect of even more to come tomorrow. Another scorching day awaited the players on day 5. Hardigan brought up the 400 with a pull-off Crawford to the boundary. Hardigan then survived two chances, a drop at mid-off and a stumping opportunity. However, the third chance he gave for the day was then taken when he hit Barnes to point. His 116 was made in just over four hours and included 12 fours. 
He chaired a 243 run stand with Hill, a record for any wicket at the time, and remains the highest for the eighth wicket by an Australian pair. Carter joined Hill. Hill then drove Rhodes' first ball of the day to the cover boundary. Carter made a lively start, taking three boundaries off one over from Barnes. Hill also struck Braun to the boundary two times as lunch approached, with the Australians going to the break at 8 for 487, with Hill on 148 and Carter on 24. Hill brought up his 150 with two runs off Barnes. Soon after, he then brought up the 500 with the drive off Crawford. However, this would be his final act as next ball he drove towards Gunn at mid-off, who took a diving one-handed catch. This ended the local hero's innings on 160, made in over five hours with 18 boundaries. He received a rapturous ovation from his hometown supporters. Saunders came in, was run out for a duck with only five runs added. Carter was left 31 not out as his training innings ended on 506. Barnes and Crawford had both taken three wickets for the English, but they had been left with a monumental chase of 419 for victory. The English innings got off to a poor start. Hobbs was struck in the abdomen by Saunders, with play being delayed for five minutes. Eventually he retired hurt, with Gunn taking his place. Shortly afterwards, Fane fell for a duck when he was bowled by Saunders. Newman Hutchings was almost out first ball, but Saunders couldn't complete the diving court and bowl chance. This didn't cost the Australians though, as Hutchings was out in the next over, bowled by O'Connor for a duck. Braun filled the vacancy, but then lost Gunn, who was caught at mid-off by Trumper off Saunders. The English were now 3 for 15, with Hobbs retired hurt. Hardstaff joined Braun at this point. The two batsmen lived dangerously, with multiple shots falling just short of fielders. However, the runs began to flow, with Hardstaff in particular going at a quick pace. The 50 was passed after an hour at the batting crease, whilst Hardstaff dealt with the bowling changes to McCartney and Upstrong by hitting both to the boundary. He brought up his own half-century after only 70 minutes. The runs continued to flow as Stumps approached. Armstrong was replaced with Saunders, who was struck first ball to the boundary by Hardstaff, taking him to 72. This was his final act though, as he lifted Saunders into the outfield, only for McCartney to run around 40 metres and take a splendid catch. He put on 113 with Braund, departing with a score at 4 for 128. This brought Rhodes to the crease. O'Connor was brought on, with Rhodes taking 7 off his first over. However, in the next, O'Connor had him lifting into the outfield, where Armstrong took a running catch almost as good as McCartney's. Rhodes departed for 9. Crawford replaced him, but the only run-run added stumps were called. This left the English at 5 for 139, still trailing by 289 runs, heading into day 6. An Australian win was seen as a foregone conclusion by most pundits heading into today's play. The English could only add 7 runs to their overnight total before the 6th wicket fell, with Crawford padding a ball back to Saunders to be out for 7. At this point, Hobbs returned to the crease, having retired hurt on 1 the previous day. He was nearly out before adding to his total, but O'Connor missed a simple court and bowl chance. Hobbs then drove the first ball he faced from Saunders for 4. At the other end, Prawn edged the ball from O'Connor through the slips for 4 taking his score to 47, but was then out, caught by Hardigan off the same bowler. The end would come quickly. Barnes could only manage eight before being caught off Saunders, whilst the final two batsmen both registered one, with a wicket apiece to Saunders and O'Connor. The English ended their innings on 183, leading to a 245-run loss. O'Connor and Saunders shared all the wickets between them, with both claiming five. This gave the Australians a 2-1 lead in the series, with the fourth test to be played in Melbourne at the beginning of February. The English first headed to Tasmania, winning their match in Launceston before drawing in Hobart, where 45-year-old Ken Byrne scored a century to save the match. They then headed to Victoria, where they had a thumping 330-run win against the state side, with Hardstaff and Hobbs scoring centuries, whilst Barnes took 10 wickets for the match. The match against Victoria was also notable, as it saw the English captain Jones return to the side, having recovered sufficiently from his illness to take his place. 
Here we lead the English in the test series for the first time in the fourth test of the MCG, with standing Captain Fane making way for him. The Australians would also make one change. Century maker Hardigan was unable to get time off his work in Brisbane. He was replaced by Sid Gregory, making his first appearance for Australia since the third test of the 1905 tour, the five tests he missed in between being the most he had done so since his debut in 1890. Noble was successful at the toss and chose the bat on what appeared to be an excellent strip, the Australian captain opening the batting with Trumper. Fielder's first over all saw balls rise higher than many expected, with Noble turning the last ball of the over just past leg slip for a single. A maiden to Barnes followed before the first ball of Fielder's second over caught the shoulder of Trumper's bat, where he was caught in the slips by Crawford, out for a golden duck. Hill replaced him, but didn't last long as he was bowled for seven playing back to Barnes. McAllister came to the crease at two for 14. The fielders crowded the batsmen hoping for a catch, but Noble and McAllister did not give him the opportunity, although it was very dour batting. Braun came on with a score at 25, and the field was spread almost immediately, allowing for more opportunities for run scoring. Crawford and Rhodes were also tried in the morning session, but other than a difficult chance from McAllister, the Australians were able to make it to lunch without further loss, taking the score on to 67, with Noble on 37 and McAllister 20. Noble started well after lunch with two boundaries. However, when on 47, he played and missed a ball from Crawford and was bowled. He was replaced by Gregory, who joined McAllister at 3 for 89. The English made use of a short ball attack, which both bouncemen found uncomfortable. They managed to take the score past 100, but the two were then out within two runs of each other. Firstly, McAllister hit a leading edge high into the slips off fielder, with Jones taking an excellent one-handed catch. He was out for 37. Shortly after, Crawford claimed Gregory, with a veteran hitting a simple catch to point to be out for 10. The Australians had now lost half their side for only 105 runs. Two locals, Armstrong and Ransford, then combined to rebuild the Australians' total. Ransford started especially well, hitting his first ball for four before striking another boundary off Crawford. The two managed to get through to tee without further loss, taking the score on to 142. Armstrong, who had only made eight runs in 50 minutes of batting to this point, started strong after tee, taking seven runs in the first over he faced. The pitch was much more docile now, with Armstrong feeling comfortable to launch Braun into the one of the elm trees delting around the ground for six. Ransford joined in the fun, late cutting Crawford for four before stepping out to strike Braun to the cover boundary. Soon after, Ransford brought up his maiden test 50 with a single to leg. Fielder returned to the bowling crease and started to tempt Ransford with wide balls outside off stump. Eventually the batsman succumbed, edging one to Braun to the slips to be out for 51. In the next over, Armstrong departed for 32 without addition to the score when he was bowled by Crawford. Carter and McCartney combined with the score at 7 for 196, but Carter could only manage two before hitting a simple catch back to Crawford. McCartney's first three scoring shots were all fours, but after surviving two chances, he was out on his third, caught in the slips off fielder for 12. The final partnership added only two more runs, with Crawford taking the final wicket to finish with 5 for 48, his second five-wicket haul of the series, whilst fielder claimed four. The Australian total of 214 was seen as a disappointing one given the nature of the pitch. The English showed only two overs to face before the end of the day. Hobbs took a boundary off each over to go to stumps on nine, with Gunn yet to score. However, as is often the case, weather intervened to change things. Rain began falling on the morning of day two and continued for two hours. With the pitch uncovered, it altered the nature of the game. As such, the start of the play was delayed for a few hours, with Australian opening the bowling with McCartney and Saunders, with their left arm spin expected to get the most out of the pitch. The batsmen find a new dimple or wrinkle to pat down after every ball. They started with some luck, as Hobbs' first five scoring shots of the day were all boundaries, although they all came from loose shots and miss hits through the slips. Gunn scored a lot slower, but made his way to seven before he gave a chance off McCartney, with McAllister dropping him low down. To the surprise of many, the English were able to make it to 50 without loss. 
However, with a score of 58, the first wicket fell, with Gunn padding a rising ball back to Saunders to be out for 13. From here, the English really struggled as the wicket became more difficult. Hardstuff started with a boundary to square leg off O'Connor before falling caught behind to Saunders for 8. Hutchings joined Hobbs, who soon after went past 50 with a cut behind point off O'Connor. Hutchings attempted to score off every ball, sweeping O'Connor for 4, but otherwise struggling. Noble replaced O'Connor and with his first ball clean bowled Hobbs for 57. The opener hit 10 fours in his innings and was well received for playing such a knock on a difficult pitch. He departed with a score at 88. From here, the English would lose their final 7 wickets for only 17 runs. Saunders and Noble ran through the English innings, with no other batsmen able to reach double figures. Most were out wildly slugging, whilst Jones was at run out attempting a quick single. Saunders ended with figures of 5 for 28, whilst Noble claims 3 for 11, with the English innings ending on 105 after only 34.2 overs. The Australians had earned themselves a 109-run lead, but still had an hour to bat on the difficult pitch. Noble and Trumper opened, but Trumper failed once again, falling for his second duck of the match when he was clean bowled by Crawford. He was replaced by Hill. Noble started his scoring with two boundaries either side of point against Barnes, but otherwise the total moved slowly. With the score having removed to 21, Noble inside edged a ball from Crawford, with the ball rolling onto his stumps and dislodging a bail, dismissing him for 10. McAllister edged the ball for four, was then caught by Humphreys off Crawford without adding in to his score. Gregory came to the crease and was able to see through the end of the day with Hill, taking the Australians to three for 49, a lead of 158. The following day was a rest day, giving the pitch time to recover from the rain of day two. When the play resumed on the Monday, the Australians started well, with Hill driving Barnes to three off the first ball of the day, while Gregory glanced into the boundary in the same over. Runs then came in singles for a while, until Hill hit one to Barnes at deep point. Hill attempted a second run, but slipped and was caught short of his crease by an excellent throw. He was out for 25, with a score at 65. Armstrong joined Gregory, but the latter could not last much longer, trapped LBW by fielder. The Australians were now 5 for 77, a lead of 186. However, with Ransford joining Armstrong, the big Victorian was about to steady the Australian ship. Warwick Windridge Armstrong was born on the 22nd of May 1879 in Kyneton, Victoria, although his family would move to Melbourne before Armstrong was a year old. After coming to prominence as a school cricket in the 1890s, he first joined St Kilda Cricket Club before moving to South Melbourne in 1898, where he was led by former Australian captain Harry Trott. He made his debut for Victoria that season, and became a regular in the Shield side around the turn of the century, whilst also moving to the Melbourne Cricket Club, where he would spend the rest of his career. Consistent performances for Victoria saw him make his test debut for Australia in the second match of the 1901-02 series against England, where he shared a century stand for the 10th wicket with fellow debutant Reg Duff. He remained a constant in Australian sides from then, only missing two possible tests from his debut until the current series. Both his batting and bowling developed over time, so much so that on his second tour of England in 1905, he became the first tourist to score over 2,000 runs and take 100 wickets on a tour. A thin man in his youth, Armstrong's weight was already starting to balloon out to what would eventually reach 22 stone, or 140 kilos, by the end of his career, but despite this, he continued to improve as a cricketer. His batting was built around strong drives and cuts. As for his bowling, whilst his leg spinners didn't turn a great deal, he had masterful control of line and dip, making it very difficult for batsmen to get after him. Close to the peak of his powers in 1908, he was about to play one of his finest innings. Wary of Armstrong's power, Barnes started by bowling leg theory, keeping the ball outside leg stump with nine fielders on the onside. This restricted him somewhat with the score rising slowly. After a period, Robes was brought on in place of Barnes. The first ball saw a quick single turn into five runs for Rancid due to a wild throw at the stumps. Crawford was also tried, but Armstrong glided him through the slips to the boundary. 
The score went past 100 before lunch was taken. The Australians now 5 for 112. Ransford had a couple of narrow escapes after the break, nearly being run out before being dropped at second slip. Making the most of these lives, he then struck fielder for consecutive boundaries. Ransford had more than doubled Armstrong's score at this point, with the big man reaching 20 runs after 100 minutes at the crease. Armstrong then drove Barnes for four before Ransford brought up his half-century with two off Barnes, but was out for 54 soon after, caught behind off Rhodes. He dominated an 85-run stand with Armstrong and departed with a score at 562, a lead of 271. McCartney replaced him at the crease. At this point, Armstrong started to accelerate on driving Barnes and cutting Rhodes for boundaries. He gave a difficult chance as the slips went on 44, with the ball going through Crawford's hands to the boundary. His 50 was raised as the Team 200 came up with a boundary to leg off Braund. McCartney was also looking comfortable, striking multiple boundaries to take his score on to 29 at the tee break, with Armstrong on 53. The Australians resumed at 6 for 216. Only one run was added before McCartney was out, caught at mid-on off Crawford. He was replaced by Carter. The English bowlers, who had maintained tight discipline for most of the day, now started to stray. Both batsmen hit Crawford for boundaries. Rhodes was then brought back, but Armstrong struck him for consecutive fours. This took his score on to 81. Joining in the fun, Carter first struck Barnes to the boundary, then took Rhodes apart, hitting him for five fours across the left arm as next two overs. He was replaced by Hutchings, with Armstrong bringing up the Team 300 before Carter hooked the new bowler to the fence, bringing up his own half-century. He then played the same stroke off the next two balls for the same result. One more boundary to Carter saw 17 runs taken off the over. However, Fielder returned and Carter's fun was ended, being caught in the slips for 66, which included 11 boundaries. He was replaced by O'Connor at 8 for 329, having shared a 117 run stand with Armstrong. Armstrong then brought up his century, his second in tests, to a rousing reception from his home supporters. The two batsmen then saw out the rest of the day, taking the Australian score to 8 for 358, with Armstrong at 114 and O'Connor 12, a lead of 467. O'Connor started day four with a boundary, was then out soon after, caught behind off Barnes. Saunders came in at number 11 and hung around for a while whilst Armstrong added 19 runs to his overnight total. Saunders was last out, caught off fielder for two, leaving Armstrong 133 not out, with the Australians posting a total of 385. Fielder claimed four wickets for the English and Crawford three, but they left the imposing total of 495 to chase in order to prevent Australia from winning the series. The English made the worst possible start to their chase. After consecutive maidens, Hobbs played a ball back to Saunders to be out for a duck. This brought Hardstaff to the crease to join Gunn. Hardstaff started positively, hooking Saunders for four. Hardstaff did most of the scoring before lunch, reaching 23 when the break was taken, whilst Gunn moved to 10. Hardstaff was lucky to survive a run-out chance just after lunch, but Rancid threw to the wrong end. The 50 was raised shortly afterwards, but just as the batsmen were building something substantial, Hardstaff top-edged the ball from Saunders and was caught by Carter. He departed for 39, with a score at 61. Newman Hutchings could only add three before he was clean bowled by Noble. Saunders was then replaced by McCartney as Newman Braun joined Gunn. Braun drove both McCartney and O'Connor for threes, was then bowled for 10 attempting a big hit off McCartney. Rhodes replaced him, but could only manage two when he edged a long hop off O'Connor behind to Carter. O'Connor then had Crawford caught behind first ball, putting him on a hat-trick. Jones survived the hat-trick ball, but the English were now in a precarious position of 6 for 88. In partnership with Gunn, Jones managed to take the English to tea without further loss. Gunn had made his way to 40 with their little fuss, but with the English only on 108, they were still a mammoth 386 behind, with only four wickets in hand. There were no miracles for the English after tea. Jones struck O'Connor for boundaries and moved into the 30s, but Gunn was out for 43 when he was clean bowled by Saunders. 
Four runs later, Jones departed for 32, driving O'Connor to mid-on. The English were now 8 for 132. Humphreys added a quick 11, was then caught behind off Saunders. The final pair of Barnes and Fielder frustrated the Australians for a while, with Saunders dropping a simple court and bowled off Fielder. Fielder then struck Saunders for two boundaries, leading to him being replaced by Armstrong. The final pair added 40 runs before Armstrong ended the match by bowling Fielder for 20. Barnes was left 22 not out as the English could only manage 186, giving the Australians a victory by 308 runs. Saunders claimed four wickets in the innings to finish with nine for the match, whilst O'Connor claimed three. With the Australians taking an unassailable 3-1 lead, they claimed the Ashes back for the first time since 1902. There was still the final test to be played in Sydney starting on the 21st of February. Before then, England played New South Wales in the tour game. The match ended in an epic draw, with New South Wales at 9 for 375 in their second innings, 11 short of victory, including a century to up-and-coming batsman Warren Bardsley. The sixth day was washed out, and the match was called off, with a test scheduled to start the next day. The Australians only made one change to their winning lineup. Third test centurion Hardigan was again available, replacing McAllister, who had only averaged 19 across the first four tests. The English made two changes, swapping their wicket-keepers from Humphreys to Young, whilst Fielder had suffered an injury against New South Wales. He was replaced by Fane, with English hoping to strengthen their batting. The skies cleared for the scheduled start of play, but the pitch was still feeling the effects of the previous day's rain. As such, when Jones won the toss, he had little hesitation in putting the Australians into bat. Noble and McCartney opened for the Australians, whilst the English started with Rhodes and Barnes. Noble began with a boundary, but Barnes struck at the other end, having McCartney caught at square leg for one. The drying wicket was causing problems, as O'Connor came to the crease, with one ball rising sharply and striking wicketkeeper Young on the mouth. The score moved to 21 before Rhodes was replaced by Crawford. Noble looked very comfortable on the difficult pitch, striking Crawford's leg boundary multiple times. However, when the score reached 46, there was a double strike. O'Connor edged Crawford behind for nine, whilst Noble was clean bowled by Barnes for 35. The Australians now had two fresh batsmen at the crease in Gregory and Hill. Hill quickly reached double figures with some marvellous drives, was then out caught at square leg off Barnes for 12. The Australians then went to lunch with a score at 4 for 68. Armstrong joined Gregory after the break, but could only manage three before he hit a simple catch back to Crawford. The Australians were now 5 for 73 as Trumper joined Gregory. Gregory pulled two boundaries in an over off Barnes, whilst Trumper hit a Crawford ball to the leg boundary. Just as a partnership threatened though, Trumper was out, miss hitting a big shot off Barnes for 10. Ransom managed to go one better than Trumper, helping take the score past 100 before he became Barnes' fifth victim, caught on the boundary for 11. The Australians were now 7 for 124. The innings didn't last much longer. Hardigan could only manage a single, whilst Gregory, who had ridden his luck, skied a big shot and was caught and bowled by Barnes. Saunders was out for a golden duck to the same bowler, ending the innings on 137. Barnes finished with the outstanding figures of 7 for 60, his best in tests, whilst Crawford claimed the other three. The pitch had been improving all across the day giving the English a good chance. However, they started poorly, with Fane being bowled by Noble for a duck. This brought Gunn in to join Hobbs. Runs came slowly, with Hobbs lucky to survive a catching opportunity in the slips, whilst Gunn was dropped at silly point. Both batsmen started to find regular boundaries though, and the score started moving along, reaching 50 after just over an hour. Noble rotated his bowlers, was unable to create the breakthrough as the batsmen took more risks. Hobbs brought up his half century with two boundaries in an over off McCartney, whilst the team century was raised at a run a minute. Gunn also brought up his 50 just before stumps, with the English taking their score to 1 for 116, only trailing by 21 runs after the first day. An excellent start for the tourists. Grey skies greeted the spectators on day two, but play was able to start on time. After looking so comfortable on the first day, Hobbs was struggling, with Noble beating him frequently. He managed to add nine runs to his overnight total before he was bowled by Saunders for 72. 
Things were now two down, but only trailing the Australians by two runs as Hutchings joined Gunn. England went ahead through four buys. Play was then stopped for 15 minutes due to misty rain. When it resumed, Gunn did most of the scoring. He drove a ball to the boundary and jogged to the other end, expecting a four. However, Trumper raced across the field and stopped the ball just before the rope. He returned it to the bowler's end, where both batsmen headed up. Hutchings ended up sacrificing himself as the ball was sent to the keeper, run out for 13. Hartstaff then joined Gunn at 3 for 168, as lunch was taken soon after. Hartstaff played brightly after lunch, taking the score quickly to 17 before the rain returned. After two hours of continuous rain, play was called off for the day. Gunn had taken his score to 77, with the English ending the day's play on 3 for 187, a lead of 50. Following the rest day, play was delayed by over three hours due to morning rain. In the second over after the resumption, Hartstaff was out tamely hitting the ball to mid on off Saunders without adding to his overnight total. This brought Crawford to the crease. He started by hitting Saunders to the league boundary, was then out for six to the same bowler, well caught at square leg by Hill. Things were now 5-197 with Braun arriving at the crease. Braun started with a big hit to the boundary off Noble. At the other end, Gunn was playing a watchful game, with the bowlers not getting the assistance from the pitch that they were expecting. Braun struck two boundaries to leg off Noble. Gunn then moved into the 90s and worked towards his 100 in singles. The score went past 240 before McCartney was introduced. Braun ran past the ball in his first over and was stumped for 31. He was replaced by Rhodes. Gunn stuck on 97 for a while, then cut McCartney for three, bringing up his second century of the series. Rhodes took seven runs off an Armstrong over, but was now in his next for 10. It was becoming clear to the crowd that, with the rules preventing a first innings declaration, the English were trying to throw away their wickets, hoping to get the Australians in on a difficult pitch. This was much the displeasure of the crowd, who thought the English weren't trying. New batsman Young gave Carter three attempts at a stumping before the keeper was successful, giving McCartney his second wicket. Jones then attempted to hit McCartney out of the ground, but was bowled for a duck. Finally, Barnes, attempting a second run, stopped mid-pitch and allowed himself to be run out, ending the innings on 281. Gunn, who had also hit out the end, finished on 122 not out, while Saunders and McCartney both ended with three wickets. The English had a lead of 144 as Australia commenced its second innings. They opened with Noble and O'Connor. The English thought they had Noble caught behind off Barnes in the opening over, with the keeper throwing the ball into the air, but the umpire declared not out, much to the satisfaction of the crowd. The Australians were able to make it through to stumps without loss with a total of 18, still trailing by 126 runs. Bright sunshine greeted the players at the commencement of day four. The runs mostly came in ones and twos, and the majority came from Noble. O'Connor played a dour innings before he was bowled for six by Barnes. This brought Trumper to the crease, who was only averaging 19 to this point in the series. He should have been out on one, but was dropped at short leg by Rhodes. The score moved past 50 before Rhodes was tried, immediately gaining a wicket when he trapped Noble LBW for 34. The Australians were now 2 for 54 as Gregory joined Trumper, still 90 runs behind the English. Gregory was suffering from a sore thumb and visibly winced every time he played a shot. With an edge through slips and some twos in gaps in the field, Gregory quickly passed Trumper's score. This brought Trumper to life. He whipped Barnes to the square leg boundary before doing the same twice more to Crawford in an over. Braun was then tried, but Gregory hit him over cover to the boundary. The 100 was raised and the two were able to get to lunch without further loss at 2 for 116, with both batsmen now in the 30s. With the wicket improving and the sun shining, the partnership continued to flourish. Trump was deadly on anything over pitch, whilst Gregory ran hard between the wickets. The deficit was erased before both batsmen brought up their half-centuries. Crawford was brought back on and second ball managed to elicit the boundary, bowling Gregory's middle stump out of the ground for 56. He'd shared a 114-run stand with Trumper and was replaced by McCartney. Braun was brought on at the other end and managed to slow the scoring for some time. McCartney was frustrated and attempted to hook a ball from Crawford. 
A top edge flew high over Jones, but the English captain ran back and took a splendid one-handed catch, dismissing McCartney for 12. He was replaced by Hill with a score at 492. Trumper, who had moved his way to 72, then struck Crawford twice as a straight boundary before hitting the last ball to square leg to take 12 off the over. He then hit Braun back over his head, taking his score to 94 at T. The Australians now on 4 for 225, a lead of 88-1 runs. After a couple of singles, Trumper brought up his century with a drive off Barnes for four. This brought wild applause from the crowd, ecstatic to see the local hero return to form. Another strike to the boundary saw Hartstuff run hard to stop the ball, only to strain his quad and have to be replaced on the field by Blythe. Hill, who had quietly worked his way to 20, now hit Barnes back over his head for a boundary. The runs were flowing quickly as the pitch flattened and the bowling side fatigued. The total raced along to 300 before Hill was out, caught behind off Crawford for 44. He shared a 108-run stand with Trumper. Armstrong came to the crease at number 7. Trumper continued to build his total, going past 150 and looking like the great batsman of 1902. He took his score to 164 before he skied a ball from Rhodes and was caught by Gunn. He batted for just over 4 hours and hit 18 boundaries. Once again, he received loud applause from the crowd as he returned to the pavilion. Ransom joined Armstrong and two were able to see out the rest of the day without further loss, taking the score onto 6 for 357, giving the Australians a lead of 213 runs. More rain fell on the morning of day 5, causing the pitch to change character yet again. After a delay to the start of play, the Australians decided attack was their best form of defence, with Armstrong swiping at nearly every ball. Through a series of edges and mishits, he quickly added 15 runs to the overnight total before he was caught off Crawford for 32. Harding came in at 9 and cut a boundary, was then bowled by Crawford. After breaking for lunch, new batsman Carter struck four boundaries in the brisk 22, before the final two wickets fell to Rhodes on 422. Rance was 21 not out, whilst Rhodes finished with four wickets to go with Crawford's five. The Australians set the English a target of 279 to win on a pitch that was playing tricks. Fane edged the first ball of the English innings just short of Trumper at slip. Hobbs was able to find multiple twos early on before Noble and Saunders switched ends. This brought about the first wicket, with Hobbs caught at mid-off off Saunders for 13. McCartney then came on for Noble and grabbed two quick wickets, bowling Gunn for a duck and Hutchings for two. Hartsoff came to the crease and managed to see through to tee, but the English were in a sorry state at 3 for 41. After tee, Hartstaff struck Saunders to the off-boundary, but he then bottom-edged the pull shot onto his stumps from the same bowler. At the other end, Armstrong was bowling with great control, racking up six consecutive maidens. This built the pressure on Braund, who spent 15 minutes without scoring before he played a wild swing at one from Saunders, only for the ball to pop up at Noble at point. The English were now 5 for 57, with Fane having scored the majority of them. He was joined by Rhodes. Fane then played some good strokes off McCartney, finding the boundary multiple times. This saw McCartney replaced by the Australian captain, who managed to sneak one between Fane's bat and pad, just clipping the leg bail. Fane was dismissed for 46, having batted for over two hours. Young joined Rhodes. The English made many appeals against the fading light to the umpires without success. However, the Australians were unable to claim any further wickets, with Rhodes in particular looking comfortable in compiling 32 before stumps. The English only had four wickets in hand and won 117, still requiring 162 for victory. Six runs were added to the score at the beginning of day six before the first wicket fell, with Young popping a catch to mid-on off Saunders to be out for 11. Newman Jones was beaten three or four times in facing Saunders before edging through his legs to the boundary. He was more confident against O'Connor, cutting and driving him for four. At the other end, Rhodes batted calmly. He was able to take the English total past 150 and bring up his own half-century, his first in tests. Runs continued to come, with most coming from pushes into gaps. The score rose to 176 before Jones was bowled for 34 by Armstrong. 
Crawford came to the crease at number 10 and still over 100 runs required. The two bats are made to lunch without further loss, with this total having moved to 188. Following lunch, another 10 runs were added before Rhodes was bowled for a nicely made 69 by a Yorker from Noble. He batted for two and a half hours and hit four boundaries. The final partnership of Crawford and Barnes hung around for a while, taking the score to 229 before Barnes was bowled by Saunders. Saunders finished with figures of 5 for 92, giving him 8 for the match. Crawford ended up 22 not out as English went down by 49 runs, giving the Australians an emphatic 4-1 series win. The English finished their tour with three-day matches against South Australia and Western Australia, both ending in draws. Despite the loss in the Test Series, the English had acquitted themselves well on tour given the low expectations at the beginning, not losing any of the tour games and pushing the Australians at most point, with weather being unfavourable to them on a lot of occasions. The absence of their captain Jones for an extended period hadn't helped, although it did mean that Gunn, who wasn't originally on the tour, was able to play. He ended up the best batsman on either side from the Tests, scoring 462 runs at 51 with two centuries. He was well supported by Hobbs, who averaged 43 across his four Tests. Outside of those two, though, only Hartstaff averaged over 30. The bowling was very reliant on Crawford, Fielder and Barnes, who took 30, 25 and 24 wickets respectively. When Fielder was absent for the final test, there was too much left for too few, with Rhodes and Braun both averaging over 60 for their wickets. Many players played their only tests on this tour, including Hartstaff, although his son would also play for England in the 1930s and 40s. It also marked the end for Len Braun, having first featured against Australia back in 1901-02. Meanwhile, the Australians had a much more even spread of performances. Armstrong led the averages, scoring 410 runs at 45. He was well supported by Hanson Carter in his debut series, who averaged 43 down the order. Whilst players like Trumper and Hill didn't have their best series, they were able to play key innings at crucial times that set the Australians up for success, something their English counterparts failed to do. Their bowling was a lot more spread for the Australians as well. Saunders showed the folly of leaving him out of the 1905 tour by claiming 30 wickets at 23, including three fifers, whilst Armstrong, Cotter, Noble, O'Connor and McCartney all claimed over 10 wickets at averages of 30 or under, demonstrating that the Australian captain had a lot more effective options to turn to than his English counterpart. However, for the Board of Control, the tour was a disappointment. Lower than expected crowds, particularly in Sydney, meant they had suffered a loss of £2,600, fueling their desires to gain control of the lucrative tours of England. Despite this series being the best of his career, this marked the end for Saunders in Test cricket. As in 1905, the fear that he would be no ball for his unconventional action meant he was left out of the squad. He ended his career with 79 wickets in 14 Tests at 22. He played for Victoria until the 1909-10 series, whereupon he moved to New Zealand, eventually playing for them against an Australian touring side in 1913-14, where he claimed the wicket of future Australian captain Herbie Collins. Another player on that Australian touring side of New Zealand was Jack Crawford, who had just starred in the current series for England. After a dispute with Surrey, Crawford moved to Adelaide, playing for South Australia for four years and featuring for Australia on that New Zealand tour. The Sheffield Shield season that shadowed the Test Series attracted almost as much attention. Fewer games than normal were played due to the intrusion of the Tests, but Victoria were able to break New South Wales' string of six consecutive Shields, winning the final match by 211 runs. This match went into the seventh day and saw three centuries on each side, with Armstrong, Ransford and visiting Middlesex bats from Frank Tarrant turning up for Victoria, whilst Noble scored 100 in each innings to go with a double century for Sid Gregory. Following the English tour, a visit by a team from Fiji was made, despite the Board of Control being opposed due to the government's wide Australia policy. The Fijians played 16 games, winning 5, losing 5 and drawing the rest. Australian cricket had returned to form after some lean years, with new players coming onto the scene to replace those that had carried the side through its dominant years around the turn of the century. The next challenge was to do it in England. 
However, the 1909 tour approaching, the destabilizing dispute between the board and the players threatened their potential success. It would take great leadership in order to deal with the distractions and, in Monty Noble, Australia had one of the best. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.